Our scripture reading today is found in Luke chapter 23, verses 26 through 43. And our sermon title today is, You Will Be With Me in Paradise. And this is the Lord's word. And as they led Jesus away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. When they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching but the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourselves. There is also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, truly I say to you, Today, you will be with me in paradise. May the Lord bless us in the reading of his holy word. Good morning, everyone. It's good to see all of you here today to come and worship the Lord together. My prayer for all of you is that you would meet Christ today that you would see him as the one who 
loves and who forgives. That you would behold his power and his beauty and that you would get lost in him. Meaning that the worries of this world, the worries of your heart, will become so small that the grandeur of Jesus' love for you and his blessings upon you would overshadow them. Today is the last sermon on our series on forgiveness. We've learned so far that Jesus has forgiven us unconditionally. That he forgave us when we were yet sinners. That we were yet enemies of God. And yet the Father, by sheer grace alone, he wasn't compelled to do this. He wasn't forced to do this. But he sent his son Jesus to die for your sins. We as believers know that we are forgiven people. We also learn that the measure upon which we understand that forgiveness of Christ to us is measured by how we forgive other people. That if we are people who aren't gracious to others, don't turn the other cheek, don't forgive 70 times 70 times, don't forgive our enemies, then our understanding of, of God's forgiveness for us is still lacking and all of us are still lacking. Our hearts continue to grow, but our hearts continue to break to understand that we completely fall short over and over again of how much God loves us. And that draws us in itself closer to him. We've understood that forgiveness is not an option for, the, for what God wants to do. That not forgiving one another is actually not, not simply detrimental to me and detrimental to the person who wronged me, but it's detrimental to God himself, where we grieve the Holy Spirit, as we saw in Ephesians, when we fail to forgive one another. This is a spiritual battle that we fight. But then there's great power in forgiveness that we forgo when we don't depend upon the Lord to say, I will love this person no matter what. We forego great blessings from our God to show us the immensity of love and the immensity of peace. When we forgo fighting to say, I will not exact justice for myself, but instead I will go to the cross, bear my sins before the Lord, Know that I am not perfect, but forgiven. And we'll share that, give that forgiveness to the other. There's great power, great peace, great contentment that comes. And the glory of God's personhood shines through you and me. Today we're going to sort of go back to the basics. 
of what it means to, to receive grace and what it means to forgive others. And I hope and pray that as we come full circle, that you yourselves once again will see the glory of Christ and seek shelter under his wings. If we read verses 26 through 43, we, we have the story of Jesus being led to the cross, crucifixion. This is a story of, of many people witnessing Jesus walking forth on that Via Dolorosa, the, 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 the trail of tears, walking to the, 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 the Mount of Skulls, Golgotha, where he is to be crucified. We see people say to him, we see women mourning and lamenting. Jesus addressing the women saying, don't mourn for me, mourn for yourselves. For it would be better if you had no children. For great is the destruction that is about to come. We see others, the officials who, who, who see Jesus and begin to mock him. You're the king of the Jews. What's wrong with you? If you say you have this power, save yourself. And then we see the two criminals. One mocking Jesus as well, saying, listen, save yourself, but not only so, but save us as well. And then we have the other criminal who responds in faith to the Lord. There are several things going on here that are worth noting for us. First is to see that there are people here, especially the rulers, especially those who have authority, the soldiers, who are looking at Jesus in only one particular way. They look at Jesus as whether he is, has the power of God or does not have the power of God where he is one who has authority to take himself down at the cross, or whether he is so weak as a frail man that he can do nothing. And it's not to say that that in and of itself is a bad perspective and a bad line of questioning to have about God himself. Is God all-powerful is a good question. Does God have the authority to do anything that he wants? That is a good question to have. But the question here from these people are, is misguided. One, because it's a self-serving question. The thief, that one thief questioning him, saying, if you have his, the authority of God, save yourself and save me as well. We often look to the authority of God and we ask him, God, if you're all powerful, why is this happening to me? Why are my circumstances so difficult? We as Christians, we, we often want to believe that if once we come to know Christ, that our, our life in Christ will be, will be smooth. 
And most of you are probably over that. <laughs> you know that a life in Jesus or knowing Jesus isn't this sort of Pollyannish type life. But we go the other direction, do we not? We start seeing the Christian life as, this is difficult. This is way too difficult. I'll still walk with you, Lord, because you're with me. But I'm not going to expect anything from this world. I'm just going to wait until you return. But either way, we doubt the power of God and we doubt his ability to exact change in our lives and exact change in the world in and of itself. So this is a good question. If this God is all-powerful, why doesn't he simply do what is best for me, what is best for his kingdom, what's best for the world? The problem here with these soldiers, and these people of authority, is that they don't understand that the power of God is dictated by the plans and the wisdom of God. And that the power of God is not dictated by the wisdom or the plans of people. Our desire sometimes is that God, I need this in my life. If you are all powerful, do this for me, please. Help me not to be sick anymore. Help the circumstances of my life to change. You're all powerful. You can do this. Why aren't you doing this? It's because the power of God is dictated or steered by God's wisdom. And by God's wisdom, he does not give you what your heart desires today because he gives you what you need to know him and what you need to have that peace of God that transcends all understanding. Now here in this passage, we look at a, a bigger picture. We're not looking at the individual. We're looking at all redemptive history. We're looking at historically, what does this mean? We see here that Jesus understands that the wisdom of God dictates that he must be crucified, that he must die. We know that Jesus at any point in time could have called his legion of angels to come down and rescue. Any time. I don't know about you, but if I had that red phone, I'd be, I'd be calling it right away. I don't like pain. But we know that Jesus, in and of himself, he had that power to say no to dying on the cross. But wisdom dictated, the plans of God dictated that he must lay down his life. Do not confuse the weakness, what appears to be the weakness of Christ dying on the cross as pure weakness. 
Jesus' death or laying down of his life is sheer strength for the plan of God to save people unto himself dictates that he must lay down his life. So let the world mock him. For us who know him, let us know that he knows how to use his power. If he who used his power and his wisdom to save you from sin and sure death, will he not give you what you need at any moment for his glory? And so we, when we see Christ on the cross, we don't say to him like that, that the one criminal, we don't say to him, Jesus, you saved me from certain death because of my sins. Therefore, I need you to save other parts of my life as well. But we say, Jesus, you saved me from my sins whatever my lot in my life will be, may it be for your glory. The other criminal had it right, and he understood this. Imagine him on the cross next to Jesus himself, and he rebukes the other criminal, and he says very interesting words. He says, do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. What we see in the second criminal is his understanding of himself and his understanding of Christ. And this is really important for us today as well. We, as people, tend to think that we understand ourselves well. We sort of know what makes us tick. We know what makes us angry. We, we know what gives us joy. Uh, we, we try to figure out other people and try to say, well, so-and-so, their love language is food, so let's Give them good food. Or so-and-so, you know, when, when they're in that mood, you just sort of give them space. And we, we try to sort of, this nice little dance, to social dance that we have to, to make everyone feel at peace. But this passage is saying something different for us. Is that we don't know ourselves if we don't know ourselves and know Christ. You do not know yourselves until you know yourself in relation to who Jesus is. That without knowing who you are in Christ, you're, you're floating in this world, trying to figure out who you are. And many of you know already that there's a natural course of that as, as well. When you were a child, you were a different person. Your whole world was your mom and dad. 
they were the wisest people in the world. You became a teenager. You've changed. Your peers dictated a lot of who you were and what you thought. Perhaps you go to college. And whether you know it or not, the college you went to dictates a lot of how you were shaped. Uh, and then some of you actually get married. And you become a different person. Always trying to figure out who you are. This passage is saying that you have a stability in your identity when you know who you are in relationship with God. And it's in knowing this relationship with Jesus himself that gives you the only identity that you need. That your life is hidden in Christ. That that event at the cross, his death and his resurrection, it's not simply an historical event, but it's a personal event to you. And it changes your outlook on all the things that might happen in your life. So what are the two things that he recognizes? The first is that he recognizes that he is under the same sentence of condemnation as Jesus is at the cross. He recognizes that he is guilty of his deeds. And I believe that this is more than simply whatever he was arrested for, for stealing or, or whatever he did. And we know this because the last words of Jesus, you'll be with me in paradise. This is more than a recognition of that one sin that he committed, the one theft or wrong that he did. It's a recognition of his humanity, a deep understanding that he deserves death and he deserves condemnation. And that Jesus is experiencing that same death and that same condemnation. My question to us is a simple question. How deep does our understanding of our sinfulness our, and our guilt, how deep is that understanding to us? If I were to say to you, your sins are so bad that all of you, please go to the nearest torture center. Be tortured. Be under the sentence of death and die a gruesome death at the end, and be able to say, I deserve this. How many of us could raise our hands and say, that's me, I'll join up for that? I don't think any of us would. None of us can truly believe, even though we know here that we are totally depraved in our sin before God, deserves condemnation. None of us can experience, ex existentially say, I want to be tortured, or I deserve to be tortured and die a gruesome death because I am a sinner before the, God, before the Lord Almighty. 
And that's exactly what this prisoner is, is experiencing, this thief is experiencing. And exactly what we know here, that the penalty of death is worse than torture, it's worse than physical death, but we understand what God is saying is that when we sin against the Lord and die under condemnation, we will be in eternal damnation forever and ever. That is the understanding, the base understanding that all of us as human beings must have of who we are. The guilt and the penalty of sin is mine. And if for some reason Jesus Christ, who's being crucified next to me, says the criminal, he's under that same penalty right now. Are we aware of the depths of our debt to the Lord? Are we aware that he needs, that we need his forgiveness and his love? The second aspect of this is that we have to understand and see and recognize and confirm the innocence of Christ. Now, you might not go as deep as what I, what I just said here to saying, you know, I'm a, I, I deserve death, I deserve condemnation, I deserve to, to um, be in eternal torture for the rest of my life. But for the most of us live, growing up here in the United States of America, we grow up with a guilty conscience. And we're really good at guilting one another. Um, you know, several months ago, reading an article on this uh, um, phenomenon called gaslighting. You know, it's, it's where you trick someone else to thinking that they've wronged you. You build a whole fake narrative around them to think that they were the ones who did something wrong. Like, for instance, someone might come 10 minutes late, and you will say to them, I told you to be here 10 minutes early. And that person says, you never said that. But then you insist so clearly, no, I said 10 minutes early, but the other person starts to believe it. Oh, I guess you did say it. I'm sorry. And then all of a sudden, that person starts to believe anything that other person says in terms of this is the reality of your moral actions. There's this culture of guilt, the culture of, of narrative that we put around ourselves that we can sort of say, Okay, I, I deserve I, I deserve bad things happening to me. And we go to God, God, just cleanse me of my guilt. Just take away my guilt. Just make me whole again. Make my life good again. Make me not feel guilty about things, but make me help me able to, to love other people and to and to have joy in life. But if that's all we're seeking then our repentance and God's forgiveness will never be pure to us. For those things are simply natural 
consequences, natural spiritual consequences of what God gives us. For they're not the thing that God gives us in and of itself. If you seek that, you'll miss it. It'll flow through your fingers. Your anger at God will become greater because you think that you've repented. You think that you've changed. You think that God is helping you to get rid of this guilt and this shame, but it's really not you. It's yourself just simply trying harder. So what's the difference? What's the difference? The difference is, is that this man on the cross looked at Jesus, and even though he himself was coming under the same condemnation, he looked at this man and saw innocence. He saw the, the purity of the Son of God, who knew no sin, who had no sin, who was dying the unjust death. His anger was not over himself and what he was experiencing. It wasn't. He says, I'm dying justly. I have no anger. I have no bitterness. This is the way I should be. But the injustice is what? Is that this innocent man was dying. He did no wrong. For us as God's people, it's not looking upon us, ourselves, but it's looking at the face of Jesus himself and seeing the Lamb of God. Seeing the innocent one. Seeing him who is without sin. Dying unjust death. That gives power. That changes lives. That allows you to have a, a totally Christ-centered perspective on all of what you are instead of a me-centered perspective. To try to love other people without having Christ at the center is foolhardy. In fact, you don't even need to come to church here. There's plenty of books and other NPR programs I can, I, can, I can give you. But what makes Christianity different? What makes everything that we do different? It's, it's we look at Jesus and we look at an innocent man, the Son of God, who died for my sins, who died for your sins. And our hearts melt. That should be me, not you, Jesus. You didn't deserve to die. I deserve to die. I can't believe you did this for me. You saved me. You who knew no sin died on the cross so that we might become the righteousness of God. Forgive me. You did this for me. Repentance isn't about simply getting over your moral hang-ups. 
Repentance isn't about simply trying to run away from your past. But it's about looking at the face of Jesus and seeing your Savior right there next to you. I love this picture. And oftentimes, we don't use this picture too much because there's historical reasons for it. But this is a powerful, powerful picture of who we are. Picture yourself on the cross next to Jesus. And you're dying there. You know that you deserve condemnation. And picture Jesus on your left or on your right. He's on that same cross with you. And he's dying that death. But knowing that you yourself actually, when you look at yourself, that you're simply tied to the cross. You're not suffering anything. But that you see Jesus in the blood. And you know that he is taking your condemnation there for you. When you look at him, our words must be, he doesn't deserve that, I deserve that. And then your words must be, thank you, Lord, for this love that is so amazing that I know I will never understand it. But I know that you will show me each and every day the greatness of my sin and the joys of your love. So how do we receive the forgiveness of God today? What does repentance look like? Well, we sort of just went through it, do we not? Repentance is simply a recognition of our own sin plus the innocence of Jesus. We sometimes when we think about repentance, we, we look at ourselves a little bit too much. And the whole thing about forgiveness becomes too much of a, of a legal transaction. Oh, God, I forgive, forgive me of my sin. Okay, Jesus says, here you go, you're forgiven. You go on with your life. That's very impersonal, very unbiblical, if that's all it is. But we must recognize that repentance is not simply looking at our sins in and of itself, but it's looking at Jesus and seeing what it cost him for us. And allowing our hearts to break in tears, not simply for our sins, but for Christ's sacrifice as well. Looking at Christ and what he's done on the cross, should I dare say this? Should bring more tears to your eyes than your own sins. His love for you should break your heart more than your own sins. That you may see the power of God more, right? Than the power of your sins that have been forgiven in him. Brothers and sisters, my prayer for all of you my prayer for myself is that this is the kind of power that we would be living. This is the type of forgiveness that we would receive from the Lord.
and that this is the type of forgiveness that so overflows in all of you. The forgiveness and the love that you offer other people is not your own. It's not from that guilty conscience. It's not from some sort of, how should I say this, Christianized sort of good feeling of this is what I need to do, but it's from Christ. That your love for Christ, that his love for you would so completely take over you. That tears of joy may fall. Brothers and sisters, a love so unspeakable on that cross. Yes, repent of your sins. But more than that, look upon your Christ who is beautiful, who is lovely, whose love exceeds anyone's expectations. And rest in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you and worship you. There is no one, no one who deserves to die on that cross more than me. For we are all the chief of sinners. But Lord, your love for us is so amazing. We behold Jesus, you, man and God, laying down your life for us, the innocent one. Lord, as you said to that thief that today you'll be with me in paradise, may we hear those words from you as well. May your spirit, Lord, be so ministering to us that we have the confirmation in our hearts that we belong to you. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your mercy. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.